Hello, my name is James Gary. I'm a member of the class of 2021 at the College of the Holy Cross and a classics major. For the last academic year, I've been able, through the JD Power Center for Liberal Arts in the World, to work as an editorial assistant for the New England Classical Journal. Today, we'll be talking about a cornerstone of the journal's work, the open access publication of scholarship. Open access publishing involves an approach to content distribution that focuses on eliminating paywalls and disseminating scholarly and artistic work to as wide an audience as possible. It seeks to address the two inextricably connected concerns of equity and productive efficiency. Since the second volume of our 42nd issue, the New England Classical Journal has been published under an open access model. Much of my work as an editorial assistant has been focused on preparing previous issues of the journal for accreditation by organizations that curate open access scholarly content. To explore the importance of this publishing philosophy and why NECJ has adopted it, I sat down with two experts in the field, Rachel Sandberg and Lisa Villa. Lisa is the digital scholarship librarian at the College of the Holy Cross. She manages the college's institutional repository of scholarly and creative work, Crossworks, and has been vital to NECJ's publication and transition to an open access model. She also oversees many of the college's other scholarly and archival projects. Rachel leads the Office of Scholarly Communication Services at UC Berkeley. Her work involves developing publishing models for open access content. She has also co-founded an organization called Transitioning Society Publications to Open Access, which generously worked with NECJ as we changed our publishing practices. I was fortunate enough to pick Rachel and Lisa's brains about both the crucial importance and challenges of open access publishing. First, I asked Lisa what exactly someone new to the subject should know about it. So first, I think the public should understand that um, the model of open access is a model of scholarly communication that actually evolved with technology. There was a history of publishing going all the way back to the 1600s and scientific societies. Um, and that model has pretty much been in existence up until the last, I don't know, 25, 30 years or so. Um, but the other thing that's important to know for the layperson is that they benefit from open access both as a consumer and as a producer. So as a research consumer, open access makes research and data available sooner and also without being trapped behind cost barriers and to a certain extent, copyright. But it also allows researchers to connect, especially if their field of study is new or a very niche field. Um, and also as a research producer, there are much broader opportunities for publishing, which means as a researcher, you're now a knowledge donor and therefore you're contributing to the body of scholarship that is already in existence. I also posed the same question to Rachel. So traditionally, as Lisa said, access to scholarly literature uh, has been available only to institutions or people with subscriptions to the publishing journal. And the subscriptions are not just expensive, but they're also increasingly out of reach, even for the largest research universities. So there's inherently a tremendous amount of 
inequity in, in the scholarly communication and scholarly knowledge ecosystem, um, where very few people are, are, in terms of institutions, are able to actually get access to knowledge. And if you don't have the money to be able to subscribe to get access to knowledge, that has a very powerful downstream effect on what you can contribute to the world's knowledge. Um, if you can't read what you need in, in order to continue to, to build new things and um, create, create new scholarship and, and generate new research ideas, um, then that actually slows progress overall. Um, so the, the value in open access is to readers being able to level the playing field so that everyone can have access to information, whether you are uh, at a research institution and, and need it because you're performing work, or perhaps you are um, a, a medical practitioner and actually need um, clinical studies to be able to decide what procedure, to make decisions about what procedures to perform on patients. Or perhaps you're a layperson and um, you know, someone in your family has um, been diagnosed with some condition and you need to understand more about it. Having access to all of that information for free levels the playing field. What's important to know is that open access does not inherently change the, the, the way that we publish. It's just an outcome. The outcome is that the scholarship is available for everyone to read. It doesn't mean that you're publishing in a different journal or a journal that doesn't have the same level of peer review or same quality standards as, as another journal. It is purely that the product is available for everyone to read. Open access publishing isn't just about removing whatever paywall around your content. It's also about making that content findable and assuring that it's credentialized. Much of my work as an editorial assistant for NECJ has involved bringing older issues up to the standards required by institutions that curate and accredit open access publications. I asked Lisa and Rachel to weigh in on this important aspect of publishing in this way. The... the value of having organizations like the Directory of Open Access Journals or the equivalent for open books, which are sometimes called open monographs, is the Directory of Open Access Books, is that um, it is a registry to sort of harness and harvest all of the uh, accredited open access journals and, and open access books so that it can feed that information to um, platforms like uh, WorldCat and, and other catalogs and other indexing systems um, to make the scholarship more discoverable. Because there really is a difference between just you know, having something online and having it online in both in a way that's discoverable and that's properly preserved um, for, for future use. I, I think the only thing I wanted to add was that in addition to helping with the discovery aspect and the preservation aspect is that, you know, in this age of vast, vast digital information and the concerns about information literacy and, you know, trying to determine what and where 
our information is coming from and, and, and the sources and how legitimate are they. I think when you have these overarching and umbrella organizations that are curating it, and I love that word, um, they're also assisting with that almost like a stamp of approval that yes, you have found a well-established, peer-reviewed, um, not fly-by-night, um, scholarly piece of um, resource that you can trust. And we have all these standards and we have all this criteria. As a developing field and an inflection point in publishing practice, open access publishing still faces a variety of legal, institutional, and cultural challenges. Much of Rachel's work focuses on education and policy advocacy in the legal area of this multifaceted problem. And much of that education seeks to change popular perception about the pitfalls of publishing more accessible material. I would say that uh, it's not just intellectual property, though, when we think in, specifically in terms of, of copyright, but also other law and policy issues that affect um, choices about open open access and um, present certain it, perceived impediments to open access for researchers. But um, I view this really as a learning opportunity because in fact, um, what can be perceived as barriers and obstacles really aren't. Um, so for example, uh, sometimes we'll uh, hear that um, a, a, an art student or an art, um, an art professor um, doesn't want to publish in an open access journal or an art journal doesn't want to publish open access because of all of the copyright clearances or permissions that would be required in order to um, get, uh, you know, in order for something to be online, the, the perception is that the, it would be prohibitive from a cost perspective to do copyright permissions clearances, um, whereas in a li more limited print run, um, permissions clearances would be more manageable. And, and the fact of the matter is that um, the creation of scholarship is, is so squarely uh, within uh, the realm of fair use, especially when scholars are including an image and really discussing it and working with it and transforming it in some way by adding new insights or, or understandings that um, they're really, you know, in, in most cases, there's, there wouldn't be any necessary uh, permissions clearances at all. This theme of educating the scholarly community on the legality of open access publishing practices also tracked with Lisa's experiences. Just very quickly, I would happily agree with Rachel's use of the word um, perceived. When we talk about those concerns, I, I second everything she said. And that is one of the areas I want to start stressing in my work. Um, when, you know, the educational aspect of my position is to just talk about, you know, creative commons licenses, talk about what these mean. It's you still have your copyright, but you're, you're, expressly telling people how, how to use your work or how they can't use your work. Um, so I, I think that they're perceived obstacles, as she said, and that definitely education is the key and um, just will add to the success of open access and add to the spread, I think, of this as, a, as becoming the standard scholarly communication model that we begin to use. 
The obstacles to publishing in this way are not solely legal. Let's hear Lisa speak about some of the challenges on a cultural and financial level that open access publishing faces. Reputation is another one. And by that, I mean that often academic reputation as well as tenure and promotion often rests on getting published in prestigious peer-reviewed journals. So this goes back to what we were just discussing. Um, They might not be as willing to take a chance on an open access journal, which may not seem as well established or reputable. Um, Author processing charges also go back to what Rachel had spoken about earlier. Um, The major academic publishers know that open access is important, so they've created a new model for authors to make their scholarship open access. It's sort of supposed to reverse the problem of high subscription costs or paywalls for researchers, but now those costs are put on the authors. And so if their institution can't afford it or won't cover it, or it's not written into a grant, or they don't think to write those APCs into the grant, um, it comes out of pocket. And not everyone's able or willing to pay $3,000 to have their article made open access. Many open publications must grapple with forging innovative models of funding. NECJE is fortunate enough to benefit from a tremendous amount of financial and logistical support for its open access publishing. The transition to this model was strongly supported by the board of the Classical Association of New England, its parent organization. Holy Cross's classics department, its library services, and its online digital repository, Crossref, have also contributed substantial amounts of time and effort. My own work throughout the year was funded by the J.D. Power Center for Liberal Arts in the World and its research associate program. Lastly, I asked both Rachel and Lisa about their hopes for the future of the open access movement and what developments they would wish to see in the area. Let's hear from Rachel first. Uh, I'll, I'll jump in um, with two wishes. Um, the first, the community of supporters and stakeholders that's, who are interested in supporting open access, not turn against themselves, uh, battling over values um, in decision-making about what uh, open access models to support. I think um, the rhetoric that is used uh, within the open access funding community is uh, detrimental and in some cases toxic to to progress. I, I mean, in my view, um, there are in order for us to fully transition to an open access universe, there are going to be a number of open access models that are required. There is no one open access business model that is going to work for every scholarly journal, for every scholarly society, for every publisher. In some cases, um, an article processing charge where um, instead of paying to read to access, uh, an author pays to, to publish instead may make perfect sense because an institution um, either has money to fund it or it's a heavily a field that's heavily grant funded and these charges can be baked into um, grant proposals. Whereas in other contexts, um, a, a crowdfunding model might be better or um, a sort of what's called diamond open access um, kind of uh, 
philanthropic model might be better, but I think it's really important for us to be supportive of, uh, to, to let a, a thousand flowers bloom here and, um, and work as a, as a group to support transition, uh, regardless of uh, what's appropriate in different circumstances. Let's also hear from Lisa about what she hopes to see in the coming years. And then in terms of my wishes, I don't know if they're wishes or hopes or just hopes that things will continue. Um, I love that open access increases the diversity and, and global scope of knowledge and information that's out there. Um, this goes back to something Rachel said earlier, where through the traditional publishing channels, it seems as though it's a lot of times the same voices coming from the same institutions, from the same parts of the world, for whatever reason that is, access, um, financial ability, whatever that is, open access now makes it a lot easier for us to receive the contributions of many researchers across academia from all parts of the world. And so hopefully to continue to see an increase in that kind of diversity will benefit everyone, especially the body of knowledge that we're all drawing from. So that's one wish slash hope. And then the other one is a little more local. And that is, I would love to see a stronger embrace of using open access opportunities we have at our fingertips, namely in, you know, at our college, you know, the repository. Um, I've talked a lot about open access journals and inadvertently eliminated things like repositories. And again, it's just such a wonderful opportunity from a research perspective, but also from a pedagogical perspective, because when, when students know that they're writing for a global audience versus just their professor or just their classmates, I think there's a different level of thought and preparation and research that goes into that product. I hope you've gotten a sense of how important this development in scholarly publishing is and what people like Lisa and Rachel do to help knowledge become available in a broad and equitable way. Thank you so much for listening.